I want you to picture what, what had to happen. She was actually owned by her handlers. She had, in essence, sold herself to them. He had to buy her back. He had to find out where she was. Her life is ravaged. She's left her husband. She's left her children. She's out playing the harlot. She's really a slave. And up comes the monthly auction of trading of slaves and selling of slaves. And there she is, waiting to be sold. In walks Hosea. She thinks, what's he here to do? Hosea, I was married to him. He's a righteous man. What's he doing here? He points and says, I want her. And he pays the price to take her back. And when you read the language, he's not angry. He doesn't say to her, you're going to pay for what you've done to me and these kids. He says, you will be a wife to me. And you will not have another. And I will be the same to you. And we see this remarkable, beautiful picture of redeeming love, this selfless love that God immediately likens to His love for His people. According to Isaiah 26.3, the key to perfect peace is a mind that is focused entirely upon God. As we all know, that is easier said than done. The question then is how do we focus on God and what does that necessarily mean? In messages 3 through 5 of this sermon series, Pastor Joplin Emerson preaches on the practical application of focusing on God. Join us as we turn our focus on the incredible attributes and nature of God. Today, in part 3 of the Besides Still Water sermon series, we learn about the miraculous redeeming love of God. Our text is going to be Romans chapter 5 this morning. Before I have you stand is, uh, is our tradition to honor the reading of the Word of God. I want to uh, kind of have a lengthy introduction this morning before getting to the text. I'm really pumped about the next several weeks of this sermon series. The groundwork has been laid for me to get to where I needed to be today. Um, the first week in this sermon series, besides still waters, I set out to do the best I could to simply prove the point that biblically we should have the right and desire to expect peace that God would not tell us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts if it weren't possible. And that there's nothing wrong with desiring to be free from anxiety, free from fear, free from worry. That's not a selfish thing, that God actually created us to be ruled by peace. And then last week, before getting to today, I wanted to just deal with the reality that you've got to be saved for any of this to work. And you've got to be in a right relationship with God and recognize that your entire purpose is wrapped up in His purpose for you before anything else really matters. And this week, I get to begin dealing with what I would call the very practical application to the child of God concerning how we are to live in peace. And what I want to say this morning is that not only am I excited, but there's a part of me that knows that I'm going to make a few people mad. And, and I'm going to tell you how I know that, because it made me mad. See, I struggled with depression uh, for about six or seven years. 
And that last year and a half, it was really bad. I spent about a year and a half where I just had no peace at all. And um, I became distant at home. I'm the type of person that rather than getting angry and violent and saying hurtful things, I tend to just disengage and do nothing and say nothing so that I don't do the wrong thing and say the wrong thing. But I became an absent father, an absent husband for about a year and a half as I dealt with just some of the most um, awful depression in my life. And I wanted the, you know, I wanted a solution. I knew there was a problem. I didn't want to come to church. I didn't want, I was pastoring during this time, by the way. I didn't want to be coming here. I felt like a hypocrite getting up, trying to convince people that they should have, you know, joy for the journey when I had none. Um, it was an awful period of my life. And I don't say that to have a woe is me pity party this morning, but to be able to say, I come at this from a place of experience. I know what it's like to be angry when somebody told me I shouldn't be anxious. I shouldn't be fearful. That I should have joy. And that if I'd get my mind focused on God, then I would have joy. That made me mad. Because I would think, well, if you lived my life and you were dealing with the problems I'm dealing with, you'd feel the same way. And the real reason I'm depressed is because all the circumstances in my life are terrible and they're overwhelming, and so I have a right to feel this way. And if God really wanted to fix this, He'd change this person and He'd change this situation and He'd change this thing, and it's all God's fault that I'm the way I am. And when I begin to see the truth, that my thinking was my fault, it made me mad. Because I wanted a pity party. And if you struggle with anxiety and fear and depression, you will have to get out of your pity party and recognize that you are not a hopeless, helpless person and that you are not hopelessly doomed to the circumstances in your life to just be sad forever. And it does take some guts to come to that conclusion. It was really hard for me to come to grips with. My thinking was my fault. Now, the other thing that tends to happen that causes people to be frustrated is that or angry when uh, they hear some of the things we're going to hear over the next couple of weeks is we tend to live in a culture where we believe that the answer to everything is medicine. I am not the anti-medicine guy. In fact, the Bible says these exact words, that laughter does good like a medicine. So the Bible tells us that God considers medicine a good thing. The balm of Gilead was an actual balm a very real, physical, healing balm. And Jesus is likened to the balm of Gilead. I am not the anti-medicine guy. However, we are quick as Americans 
to blame everything that we're experiencing, everything we're thinking on circumstances outside of our control. There's no way we can change the way we think. There's no way we can change the way we feel. So let's just eat a bunch of medicine to somehow take away feeling. I promise you this. That might not be your situation if you're taking medicine, but it is true of the majority of us as Americans that we tend to trust in the almighty pill. Without taking the initiative to truly get our thinking right. Me personally, I tried several different medicines. And at the end of the day, none of them healed me. They only changed my ability to feel. And that's about the best they did for Joplin Emerson. So I'm not against medicine this morning. I'm not trying to tell you to quit taking your medicine. If you ever hear anything I say and you think, that guy's saying I shouldn't be taking medicine, then you heard me wrong. I am not saying that. That said, I came to a very hard time in my own life when I recognized that all my excuses really begin to crumble if I believe what this book said. That I was to take my own thoughts captive. That I was to be anxious about nothing. That constantly I'm commanded to fear not. That uh, Paul spoke about being content in all things. I wasn't content at all. Didn't matter if I had a wife that loved me, kids that loved me, church that loved me, and things. didn't matter. I had no, I could not be content. I was constantly frustrated, constantly worried, constantly heavy, constantly oppressed. And I had all the excuses in the world for it other than I refused to get my own thinking straight. Isaiah, uh, you don't have to turn to it there, stay where you're at in Romans 5, but in Isaiah 26 and verse 3, remember it says that God will keep him in perfect peace. Who finds the right medication. That's insulting. That's blasphemy. God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon the Lord for he trusts in God. See, I had to come to grips with Joplin Emerson didn't believe that statement. And I can't speak for you, but I can tell you straight out, I didn't believe it. I needed a bunch of other things to keep me in perfect peace. I needed this scenario to change in my life. I needed people to change in my life. I needed finances to change in my life. I needed this. If God would do all these things, and I I begin to see, Joplin, you don't even believe the very thing you're getting up and preaching week in and week out. And I'm not going to lie to you. It was hard for me to swallow. Now, because I had to go through this process in my own life, I understand how it comes across to others who are facing the same struggles. And my fear is, is that I come across that way. I don't want to. That's why I'm taking this incredibly long introduction to try to make sure that you all know that's not my intention here. It never helps anybody that's struggling to be talked down to. Ever. And that is not what I plan to do at all. On the positive side of this, one of the things that I came to see was that if indeed it is true that my thinking is my responsibility and that my emotions are my responsibility and that if I will do it exactly as God says I'll do it, there is an answer to this, I then began to realize that I was not hopelessly controlled by all my circumstances. And that was incredibly helpful. The thought that, well, wait a minute, maybe this guy doesn't have to change this person. Maybe my career doesn't have to change this way. Maybe this situation doesn't have to change. And 
Nothing has to change in order. For, it's all, and it's all of a sudden I recognize I had the power here. And that was freeing for me. And I began the process of getting my thinking straight. And uh, it took me almost six months of what I'm going to try to take you guys through in the next three to four weeks. Six months of meditating on these things, pushing through these things, having to be honest with myself. Either you believe what God says or you don't. Which is it, Joplin? Either you take responsibility for your thoughts and your actions or you blame them on everything else around you. Which is it, Joplin? Because it can't be both. And the reality is I had one of the most important spiritual breakthroughs in all of my life. I can tell you where I was at, where I was sitting, the location when it took place. And God's honest truth with my wife right here, his witness, and my kids. Um, that was somewhere around 10 years ago. It's been so long ago, I don't even hardly remember now. And I have never, ever, ever again went back into depression. No medicine. I didn't get all the chemical stuff finally right, worked out with the doctors. I have never again, in all the troubles that we deal with, all the battles that we face, I have never again went back into this depression that ruled my life for six years and threw me into an absolute dark place for a full year and a half. I mean, brothers and sisters, I got so sick. I've never lived anywhere else in this country. Born and raised in Clearwater, Kansas, 20 miles from here. I got so sick, I'd be on Kellogg and not know where I was going, lost. I'd wake up in my truck, drive in a certain direction on a highway, and not even know why I was in my truck and where I was going. My mind was shot. You talk about burdened and oppressed. I'm not talking low-grade functioning depression. I'm talking on the brink. I know what it's like. And I do know the answer. Biblically, I have lived it. I have experienced it, and I have watched it hold true and consistent now for more than 10 years. And so I hope that encourages you. If you're, if you're struggling with anxiety and fear and worry and doubt, I hope it encourages you to open your heart a little bit to some of the things I want to share over the next couple of weeks, okay? All right, let's get into the Word of God this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Would you stand as we honor together the reading of God's Word? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let us pray. Father, we pray as we come into this portion of this sermon series that you would help us to uh, see the application. How does it work? Uh, How do we move beyond these phrases where we know we're not to be fearful? We're told to be anxious about nothing. How do we move from just knowing these phrases to this becoming a tangible reality in our lives? God, I pray that you would help me, Lord, to uh, rightly divide the word of truth. Help me to teach your word correctly and accurately. I pray you'd open our hearts to hear. God, open our eyes to see. Help us with our unbelief, God. We do believe, but help us with our unbelief, Lord. God, I pray that you'd set people free over the next several weeks. I pray that anxiety would flee. I pray that fears would vanish. I pray that a sense of joy and excitement about life would come to, to life again in the hearts of many of your people. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to look with me at Isaiah 26 and verse 3 one more time. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We see that the key to perfect peace is a mind that's focused on God, a heart that trusts in God. And so the real secret to perfect peace is first and foremost the willingness to look away from your problems, to to look away from the pain and suffering in the world, to look away from all the negativity and the hurt and the sin, to look away from what's not right in your life. The real secret is to look away from it and to look to God. And this is a choice. It is a conscious choice we must choose to make. It's no wonder that so many of God's uh, sons and daughters, so many in the church are currently really discouraged, experiencing anxiety and fear and worry in in ways that uh, is at a higher capacity than we've seen in the last several years because we are constantly consuming negativity. We are constantly focusing on what is wrong and what, is, what, is, what the problem is and everything that's, that's wrong around us, and we're not focusing on God. And I'll get people that will tell me, well, you don't want to stick your head in the sand. You need to have an awareness of what's going on. And these are the same people whose lives aren't ruled by perfect peace. I'd rather keep my mind stayed upon God. I'd rather keep my mind focused upon the Lord. So the key then is looking to God. And now I ask the question, what does that mean? And what I want to do over the next several weeks, I just want us to study God. I want us to actually together look to the Lord and see why looking to God brings us hope and peace. Over the next several weeks, we are going to stay right here in Romans chapter 5. I might even read that same 11 verses at the beginning of each sermon over the next three weeks. Today, we're going to look at one very specific aspect here, and that is the fact that God loved us, right? So while we were yet sinners, God loved us. Christ died for the ungodly. God showed His love towards us. He demonstrated it. 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this morning, I want to just focus on this one aspect. We're going to look at the mercy of God. We're going to look at the grace of God. But this morning, we're going to look specifically at the love of God. And I want to do it with um, one, one more verse to kind of what I would call provide some context to what the love of God looks like. And that's going to be Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. It says this, In Him, that's Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. I want you to look at that word redemption. We have redemption through His blood. The type of love that God loves us with is what I will call this morning a redeeming love. And I want to preach to you about the redeeming love of God and why it matters that you understand how it works, what it looks like. Redeeming love, it tells us something. It declares something about the nature of God and it declares something about us as we're going to see this morning. I'm going to share with you three things that redeeming love declares to us. Number one, redeeming love tells me this, that God wants me because He loves me. You can go back to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be there uh, most of the rest of the morning. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. God loved us, and while we were yet sinners, notice that the motive of God's redeeming love is simply this, that He loves us. It's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because of any actions that we've, we've done. It's not that God, you know, once we decided to turn to Christ, God loved us enough to find a solution for us to make our way back. But while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, God loved us enough that He would devise a plan where we might be rescued. You need to know the reason that God wants you. It's because He loves you. This is simple, but the reality is, most of us, if we're honest, if I ask you the question, do you feel, um, you know, worthy to be loved, most of us wouldn't put a hand up and say yes. I used to not be able to put a hand up and say yes, but I'm going to tell you something, I am worthy to be loved. You want to know why? Because God's already proven it. You can argue with God about it all day long. God's the one that gets to decide what's worthy and what's not. Not you, not me. I can come up with a thousand reasons why I don't feel worthy. And I can sound real humble and say, none of us are worthy. Well, then God must have been wrong. Because God said, you were. And He proved it that He thought that so much in giving a son to die for you. And so... This is significant because my worth now, it isn't based upon my things. What I can do, what do you got to offer, you know, what, what, uh, how, how much, you know, how damaged goods are each of us. We've all, we could all tell our lemon stories this morning, figure out who's messed it up the worst. And we can all talk about why we're not worthy. And you know what will happen in that? Not a single one of us will ever come to a place of peace. Why don't you stand? Tell us why you're not worthy. Why don't you stand? Tell us why you're not worthy. Why don't you stand? Tell us why you're not worthy. Guess what's going to happen with our peace level? Whoop! I can tell you this, it'll produce the exact opposite of what the Word of God commands us, of letting the peace of Christ rule in our heart. 
And so coming to see that the reason God wants me is because He loves me, it'll change your life. It won't make you high and lifted up and proud either. I'll never forget the day that I got saved, and it became very real to me that God was real. He'd revealed Himself to me. My heart had come alive to the reality that God was true, that He existed. That he, and, and I remember thinking to myself, man, why wouldn't God let somebody like me just die? Like, I'm a terrible person. Why would God show Himself to me? And I can't tell you, I didn't hear some audible voice. I didn't hear, you know, thunder from heaven come down and say, here's the answer, son. But I just knew. It's like I knew the answer. You know why God showed Himself to me? And, and God didn't just let me die? It's because He loved me. And I knew it. And it just made me want to serve Him. It didn't make me want to abuse that and say, well, I guess apparently you can live how you want and God still loves you. It did the opposite to me. I'm like, how could He love somebody like me? He must be good. And He deserves to be served. You need to know that the fact that God has this redeeming love for you, the reason that God wants a relationship with you is one reason. He loves you. You need to hear that this morning. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care what you've done. You know, as Christians, we find ourselves falling and failing sometimes. I'm waiting to find the one Christian who can truly stand up and say, no, I've been doing this years, preacher, and I have lived righteously the whole time. Never treated anybody wrong. Never thought a wrong thought. Never fell on my face. Because whoever that man or woman might be, they need to replace me. Because I have fallen on my face. And I've had to get back up. And I've had to be reminded over and over and over again, God didn't choose to love me because I got it right. Our relationship never started out with, wow, now that guy right there, he's got it going on. He deserves to be loved. And then me and God had a relationship. No, I was a sinner in absolute rebellion against a holy God, and yet He loved me anyways. And I've had to remind myself that even at times as a Christian, when I feel like I've blown it, or when I feel like, God, how could you love somebody like me? We start to feel ashamed. You know, that's what uh, the, the word shame is attached to what Adam and Eve felt in the garden when they sinned against God. They felt ashamed, and so they wanted to hide themselves from God. That's the devil's work. Most of the time when we all talk about how unworthy we are, we're really just shaming ourselves. I'm telling you, some of the stuff I'm saying is going to be hard for some people to swallow. We've been taught our whole lives, right, as Christians, that, that uh, we should constantly feel unworthy. But then you read the Bible and find out that that's kind of an exaggeration. It's a uh, off-in-the-wrong-ditch situation where, um, at, at, on one hand, in and of ourselves, yes. On the other hand, the fact that the God of heaven and earth loved us enough to send His Son to die for us, uh, that tells me that God said I'm worthy. And so, if I'm going to begin getting my, my mind aligned with God and my heart aligned with God, I guess I need to believe what God says about me and not what I say about me and not what my failures say about me and not what the world says about me. I have to be willing to accept that. God's redeeming love, it declares 
that he wants me because he loves me. There's nothing that we did to earn it. God simply loves us. There's probably not a better picture of this than you'll find anywhere um, than in the book of Hosea. This redeeming love that is unearned. So in the book of Hosea, the whole story is about the life of Hosea. In a nutshell, God tells Hosea, I want you to marry a harlot. And Hosea does it out of obedience to God. And guess what? She leaves him. Actually becomes a paid prostitute. And then God says, now I want you to go find her. I want you to track her down. I want you to redeem her, and I want you to marry her again. And the book of Hosea is meant to be this great big picture of God's relationship with His people. You know, there are some uh, commentators that believe the uh, initial command to marry the harlot was uh, that she wasn't a harlot yet. It was just a prophetic of what would take place. The Bible doesn't actually tell us that. It's kind of conjecture. But to tell you the truth, I have a problem with that view because most of us were guilty, wicked sinners when God came to us to start with. It wasn't as if we were all righteous and beautiful and pure and, 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 and because of that reason, God brought us into His family and then afterwards we sinned. No, we were sinners before our relationship with God ever started. And even in that state of sin, God came to us. And he, th- this concept of redeeming love, though. So uh, Hosea's wife, she leaves him. They're married. They have kids. She leaves him and the kids. And goes off into this wicked life, this life of prostitution and harlotry. And God comes to him and says, I want you to go and take her again as your wife. In fact, uh, if you guys can pull up Hosea 3, it's a very short chapter. I want to read Hosea 3 real quick. It's only like uh, five verses. This is, this is the um, statement of the Lord telling him to go back and marry uh, his wife again. Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1, The Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, look at verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and whatever that word is of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. A couple things I want to note here about this text and how it relates to redeeming love. This is a picture of redemption. 
And I want you to picture what, what had to happen. She was actually owned by her handlers. It's kind of an awkward thing to talk about, but it's a reality. She was owned by her handlers. She had, in essence, sold herself to them. And while they sold her out, they also owned her and cared for her, if you will, and provided for her. There was almost this contractual obligation. In other words, uh, Hosea couldn't just come in, kick the door down, say, I'm bringing her home. He had to buy her back. He had to find out where she was. I want you to just try to put yourself in her shoes. Her life is ravaged. She's left her husband. She's left her children. She's out playing the harlot. She's really a slave. And up comes the monthly auction of trading of slaves and selling of slaves, and there she is, waiting to be sold. In walks Hosea. She thinks, what's he here to do? I know he's not here to buy a whore. I know Hosea, I was married to him. He's a righteous man. What's he doing here? And he points and says, I want her. And he pays the price to take her back. And when you read the language, he's not angry. He doesn't say to her, you're going to pay for what you've done to me and these kids. He says, you will be a wife to me. And you will not have another, and I will be the same to you. And we see this remarkable, beautiful picture of redeeming love, this selfless love that God immediately likens to His love for His people. I'm not advocating that any of us, spiritually speaking, run out and play the whore. But I'm telling you something. We need to have our minds fixed and understand the remarkable redeeming love of God. It's all too often we try to motivate ourselves to holiness by looking at God as this God with this great big hammer just waiting to come down. You better not. You better not. Your life will be ruined. And then you know what happens with all so many? They fail. They sin. And they've been told all their life, it's done. And so they wander out playing the harlot because they have not been taught to truly and properly see God for who God is. I'm going to tell you, there have been times in my life that I've blown it. There have been times in my life I just didn't get it right. There has been times in my life I've allowed attitudes that should have been dealt with like that to just fester for months and, and just the way I felt and treated people. And, and I didn't want to read the Bible, you know. I didn't, I didn't want to pick it up. I just knew God would somehow open up a verse that eat my lunch. And so I didn't want to. I didn't really want to pray. I was good with group prayer meetings where we could all be together. But I didn't want to get along with God and have to face God face to face for my attitude and the way that I've been my little pity party and everything else. But you know what happens eventually? I get tired of feeling that way with God. I get tired of 
that. I've known too much what it's like to have a great relationship with God. I've known too much what it's like to live in a, a sense of joy with Him. And it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then it's like, well, I'm going to have to face Him. And I'm like all of you. I, I make the decision, all right, I've got to return. I've got to repent. I've got to get it back, get things back right with God. And I prepare myself for the mother of all weapons, spiritually speaking, right? Because I deserve it. 20 years, I've never received it once. 20 years, I finally get my heart right. I repent and I face the Lord and I go to Him and I confess my sins and I acknowledge what I've done and I'm ready to turn. And it's like, there is my Father, loving arms. Son, you should have did this a long time ago. Sometimes I think, God, why don't you just put your finger on me a little bit and make me pay? I'll tell you the reason probably that he doesn't is because we tend to do it to ourselves way too long. And over the years, you know, especially as a young Christian, I remember I used to try to, uh, you know, make atonement for myself, pay penance. I would blow it. I'd have a, you know, I'd do something I shouldn't have done. I'd think a thought I shouldn't think. I'd treat somebody in a way that was less than, than Christ-like. And then I'd think, well, now you're going to have to fast for three straight days. No food for you, boy. That's what you're going to have to do. And you're going to have to read now for a straight hour with two weeks. You can't, you've got 14 consecutive days. You know, and I'm doing all these things to make myself back into this place of righteousness where I feel like I can legitimately approach God now. The irony of that mindset is that it's incredibly self-righteous and it diminishes the blood and love of Jesus. But it took me a long time to really come to see that that's just not how it works and that there needs to be a sense of peace and uh, assurance in my heart that the reason that I can approach God is because of the finished work of Christ. It's because God loves me, and He loves me because He's God. God is love. It's not because of what I do. It's not because of how many hours I read or don't read. It, while there are consequences to our actions, don't misunderstand me this morning. While there are consequences to our actions, our actions do, do not make God's love go like this. I mean, think about it with your own children. Amazing how many of us feel like we're better fathers than God. We think God's love for us does this. Is that what your love is with your kids when they do wrong? You ever been in a period, if you're a parent, you ever been in a period with your children where you were deeply disappointed with them? Did your love change? Nope. You love them the same. Do you love them more? When things are going well. No. I would argue as a parent, it's almost impossible. It's just almost impossible to change the degree on which you love your children. You just love them because they're your kids. Doesn't mean you ever never get mad. Sometimes you get mad. Sometimes you got a discipline. Sometimes you're super proud because of accomplishments they did. And, and the way that we relate to them sometimes changes based upon these factors. But the love that we have for them never does. It's the same. Jesus said, in essence, if you being wicked, 
know how to love your children, how much more does the perfect heavenly father love his? Learning to see that began to help me get past this stage in my life where I constantly felt like I had to somehow make things better in order to approach God. And I, it's just like, imagine a scenario with your own children. Maybe something is wrong. Maybe something's bad. But the moment that they turn, the moment they come, the moment they just want you to hold them, we don't even think about it. It's, it's, it's a natural instinct. It's, doesn't even require any processing. You need to know that's how it is with God this morning. Now, when we think about redemption and, and, and uh, Hosea literally buying back his wife, the second thing that redeeming love tells me is that our God is able to cover the costs. Redemption is costly. The word redemption that I read in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, the word redemption means this, literally. It is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Redemption, the word in and of itself, is tied to payment. That's why there had to be a payment for Hosea's wife. The fact that we have redemption through his blood, it tells me this, that no matter what I owe, no matter what the cost is, my God is able to cover the cost. You need to know that this morning. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to make atonement and, and, and pay for your things that you've done wrong. The blood is sufficient. We have redemption through His blood. Now, I'm talking to you about peace. I'm talking about learning to stay our mind upon the Lord. I want to share with you this truth about um, sins. Would you agree with me that there are a few things, if any, maybe none, that make us feel more distant from God than when we find ourselves sinning? I'm not making excuses for sins, but I'm just telling you we've got to talk about what happens when they do. Few things seem to drive us further away. We feel distant from God. We don't want to approach the Lord. We don't even want to come to church sometimes because we're going to feel bad and we're going to feel guilty and this and that. Few things make us feel like we want to distance ourselves from God like our sins, the things we have done. I want you to understand how we have redemption through the blood. And you need to know this. If you're ever going to have peace in your heart, the only way you're going to have peace when you find yourself guilty before God is to understand how God deals with sins. The first picture that I want us to, to look at, and then we're going to look at the cross, I want us to look at the symbol in the Old Testament of how sins were dealt with. So there used to be a, a tabernacle, if you will, and it was surrounded by a large fence or gate uh, wall. And um, while there were sacrifices that took place fairly regularly, there was one day a year that this great sacrifice uh, took place, and it was called the Day of Atonement. And it was the day that uh, once a year, 
Uh, blood was presented to God on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of their sins. And this had to happen every year. And this blood that was taken would be uh, taken into what was called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was at, and it would be sprinkled on the Holy of Holies. Now, just follow me for a moment. Inside the Holy of Holies, there was no outside light. There were not windows, so no earthly light was making it its way into the resting place of God. Nobody was allowed in there except the high priest one time to bring in the blood and sprinkle on the mercy seat and leave. And so there's this great big, um, you know, it's a great big day. It's the, it's, it's the most significant day for the forgiveness of sins, for the people of Israel, every year it's a huge deal. There's this ceremony that goes into it. There's the, the slaughtering of the animals that goes into it. The presenting of the blood to be brought into the Holy of Holies. But when it's all said and done, the blood is brought in to the Holy of Holies. It's sprinkled on the mercy seat, which is the uh, manifest presence of God at that time on earth. And nobody gets to see it happen. And so I asked the question this way, who was the blood for? It wasn't for the people. The blood was on behalf of the people, but it wasn't for them. They didn't sit around and think, here's a good solution. We demand the blood. Who was the blood for? It was for God. That's who it was brought to, God. That's who it was presented to, God. That's whose wrath it, it, it pushed off, God's. The blood was for God. Here's a statement that changed my life and how I dealt with my own sins. If the blood satisfies God, it better satisfy you. But how many of us are not satisfied with that answer? We want the blood plus a little bit of self, you know, beat ourselves up for a couple of weeks. I wanted the blood of Jesus plus I need to fast for three days. I need to somehow pay penance for the, my failures, for my sins, for my, you know. And, and here's the truth about sins. Most of the time when we talk about righteousness, uh, we talk about the blatant sins. But the Bible says to him to do, that knows to do good and does it not to him, it's a sin. You want to really run down that rabbit trail, we sin all the time. The Bible says this, that to, the greatest of all the laws is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, here's what I believe. I personally believe that it is fair to uh, assume that the greatest sin is the breaking of the greatest law. That's what this pastor believes. I believe this now for almost 15 years, uh, stumbling upon this truth. That the greatest of all sins, 
the most wicked and vile and evil of all possible sins would be to break the greatest of all laws. I think that's a rational conclusion. But in reality, probably not one of us here, even on a church morning Sunday when we showed up to worship, I doubt that any of us have to this moment, this day, loved God with all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our soul, and all of our mind. Making all of us guilty of the greatest of all sins, even on a church day. You don't have to agree with me about that. I'm just telling you that's the way Joplin Emerson sees it. I think there's biblical merit behind uh, the rationale that I just said. But if that's the case, how do we approach God? There's only one answer, brothers and sisters, it's by the blood. We have redemption through His blood. And when I came to see that I can approach God, not just that He loves me, it's not just that God loves me, He does love me. But he has paid the cost. The cost is done. Now that's the Old Testament picture. Then you look at the actual fulfillment of what Jesus did on the cross. You look at what he endured. The passion of Christ. If you've never seen it, you should see it. It was for me the final thing in my life I felt like and probably probably. Um, there's even greater degrees of understanding it than I do. But it was the final piece for me that helped me to see the actual cost. And the foolishness of thinking God would pay that and then still need me to read for an hour a day before I could approach Him? Are you kidding me? That God would, would, would expend the life of His own Son and it wasn't a peaceful death. It would have been one thing, one thing if God's Son died for us, lived His life and went ahead and died. That ain't how it happened. He went through the most awful and horrendous of all executions. Why? To pay for my redemption. And when I saw the cost that was paid, it began to make me feel like a fool for thinking somehow I could add to that. And I saw that God wants me to, 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 to live for Him out of, out of gratitude and out of thankfulness, but not out of trying to somehow add to the cost that's already been paid. And I saw this truth. This is a statement, brothers and sisters, that I'll tell you for 10 years, I, I would have argued against it, had a hard time believing it. And you can argue it too. You're welcome to your own opinion. You're free to be wrong. But... This is a statement concerning the redemption of God, concerning the cost that was paid. It's been one of the most freeing statements I've come to see. My ability to mess things up is not greater than God's ability to fix them. And again, when I came to see that, it never did make me think, yes, let's go mess things up. Never. I can't even understand or comprehend that feeling but I'm telling you, there was a freedom when I recognized that the cost was paid and that the blood that was sufficient to, to cleanse me in my most wicked of days and take a wicked sinner like I was and cause me to be born again, that that same blood is still sufficient today and I don't have to worry and panic and fear and live in anxiety that somehow, some way, I might get it wrong enough that eventually God's not going to love me anymore. God has already proven that He loves me with a love that is superior to any love on earth. He has paid the cost 
with the redeeming blood of Jesus. The blood has been shed and it satisfies our debt. The blood satisfies God. So brothers and sisters, it has to satisfy us. It has been paid in full. God's redeeming love tells me He is able to cover the cost. Number three, redeeming love tells me that I'm valuable to Him. Because there is a cost attached to redemption, I can accurately assess my worth and value according to God. Also, one of the hardest things I've ever had to allow my mind and heart to believe. Because I can assure you that my assessment of my worth and value is not very high. What would Joplin give for somebody like me? Let me ask you just for a moment. I want you to think about your own life. Do you feel like you are worth the value of God's own son? If you were to put a price on what is your life worth, would you say my life is worth the death of God's son dying that I might live? I don't think any of us would. But here's the reality God did. The fact that God would pay the cost for you, the fact that God would pay the cost for me, brothers and sisters, that makes us valuable. And when we start looking to God and looking to Christ, you're probably going to hear me use these words a couple of times over the next several weeks, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We have, or through Christ, we have redemption through Him, through His blood. It is in Christ. When you go and read Romans chapter 5 that we just read, verses 1 through 11, it's all about being blessed because we are in Him. It is about the finished and final work of the cross. And if we're going to have peace rule our hearts, remember what Isaiah 26 tells us? We will be in perfect peace when we keep our mind, the things we're thinking about, stayed upon the Lord and our heart trusting in Him. And it is a choice to make the decision, I am going to quit focusing on all the negative. I'm going to quit focusing on my inabilities. I'm going to quit focusing on my weaknesses. I'm going to quit focusing on what people are doing wrong. I'm going to quit focusing on all that I feel like I lack. I'm not going to focus on these things. Instead, I'm going to stay my mind upon the God who loves me so much that His love was a redeeming love. He paid the cost. And I recognize that I have value to Him. That matters. As our uh, worship team, if you guys would get in place, I want to close with this final thought about why this matters. Why knowing your value matters. You know, all of us desire to be liked. All of us desire to be appreciated. And we often determine our value based upon 
how appreciated we feel. The more people like us, the better. The more people that have problems with this, we begin to feel like we're worthless. The more people lift us up and say, oh, you're great, I start to feel valuable. The more people say, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, we start to feel worthless. And we find that our value, when it's tied to people, it does this. Now, make no mistake about it, I am a human just like every one of you. I am not a robot, and I am from this planet. I have feelings, too, just like everyone else. Part of the struggle that I dealt with in those years of deep depression was the constant fear, not that everything was wrong, but that eventually things might fall apart. That's what I was afraid of, that things might eventually go wrong. Isn't that crazy? When I look back at my state of mind and how messed up I was, it was just off. But when you're there, I'm telling you, when you are there in that dark place, it ain't like you can just pull your boots up and just, it's just, until you've been there, you just don't know. It's almost like having the flu. You can't just decide, well, I'm not going to be sick today. Yes, you are. It's not a choice. How you act and react is a choice. But you can't choose to not be tired. You can't choose to not physically feel anxiety when it feels like your chest is about to burst out. It's not like you can just say, stop it. It was you didn't, you weren't doing it on purpose to start with. It's not like you can just choose to want to mow the yard again. You just don't want to. Seems overwhelming. But you can choose to start getting your thinking right and, 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 and be conscious about what am I focusing on? What am I thinking on? And for me, I was, here's what I was afraid. I was afraid the whole thing was going to fall apart one day. That everybody would look at me as a great big failure. And when I saw that my value, according to God, was so great, that He was willing to give His own Son for me, I came to see this truth. That if there was such a thing as a scale, and there shouldn't be, but if there was such a thing as a scale, if every human on earth, all seven billion of them, felt like I was worthless, the fact that the God of heaven and earth saw me as so valuable that He was willing to pay the redeeming cost for me and He loved me, tips the scales. And it was like my value is no longer tied to what you all think. Who I am as a person is no longer tied to what everybody thinks. And it doesn't matter if it all does fail. It doesn't matter because God has already paid the cost. Therefore, my valuable is infinitely and eternally fixed. I don't have to fight to prove that I'm worth anything anymore. Because God has already proven it. Brothers and sisters, this is just the very first. I'm just like starting to scratch the surface of what it means to get our mind fixed on God. And how our relationship with Him and how we are in His sight and in His view, how this begins to impact peace, anxieties, worries, and fears. What happens when we have done wrong? Well, we'll talk about mercy next week. 
But what happens when no matter how right we do get it, it's still not enough? Well, we'll talk about grace the week after that. And we're going to start focusing on God. I encourage you to join us.